Hey, everybody. It's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Andrew Cortina, former co-founder of Venmo and now co-founder of Venn. Uh, Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So first I want to start with taxes. Taxes is a topic you've been thinking about a lot for the last year. Why don't you talk a little bit about first what got you into the topic and then uh, what are some things you learned along the way? Yeah, I think what got me into it was I would see stuff in, in the media about – people are always complaining about like you know the 1%, this, yeah. and – wealth tax and the AOC tax on the rich. And as usual with news media and politicians, there was a lot of like inflammatory language and not much to learn. Um, So I was like, I want to just go figure this stuff out myself and kind of understand how much tax is the government collecting and like how, how do they do it today? How are the, like I, I knew the about progressive taxes and stuff, but I didn't know like exactly like what are all the like the different brackets and rules and like what percentage of income comes from what bands, et cetera, uh, today as like a baseline. Well, actually, the first one that I wrote about was this like tax on human attention, which was kind of like a far out idea. It was more about some observations I had about kind of like media and um, people's kind of reservation wage and stuff. So that one was like, it happened to involve a tax thing, but the the stuff that really got me thinking about taxes was just the kind of desire to like figure it out myself, what was going on and like, see if I could come up with a better way to do it. Um, and my approach was basically like, okay, I knew how to like do a business model, like a financial model in Excel. So I want to like just get as much data as I can. And you, you basically sort of estimated the government's PNL. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I like made a spreadsheet and I was like, all right, let me start modeling. And I want to do like a sensitivity analysis and a bunch of different scenarios on different ways to do it and just kind of like understand, or like if you're, you know, same way you would understand, uh, try to understand customers for like an e-commerce business and kind of segment them and understand like who are your power customers, et cetera. I wanted to do the same thing for the, for the country and just kind of figure it out that way. Um, and it's like the, the kind of thing I call a napkin model where it's like the level of accuracy of what you would do on a bar napkin, except you're using Excel. So I bet I spent a bunch of time on that. And the, the kind of first pass was, okay, let's just take the kind of existing, uh, income bands as they are divided up in the IRS data and, do a couple different scenarios and see, you know, if you change who's paying what, what, what kind of things could you do it like pretty easily? And all the other kind of topic that was on my mind, which is another thing you see kind of lots of media about without much depth of coverage is uh, basic income. Yeah. And like the thing I've heard from everybody is like, it's so expensive. Like how would you pay for it? And so I was like, okay, like let's just see like how much, you know, revenue we can generate by increasing taxes. And so I had like the baseline model, an AOC model, which was something like, you know, raise taxes to 70% over for people who are earning over $10 million a year, which doesn't generate, I mean, that's, it would give everyone like, I don't know, 50 or $500 in basic income or something. It doesn't do a whole lot, but that was like the kind of first pass. Then I kind of, I took a break from it and I got back into it and 
the impetus for that, I was, I was thinking about free speech um, and advertising and that kind of the ability to like pay to distribute your message, you know, like everyone has the right to free speech, but not everyone has the equal ability to kind of like throw money behind it and get distribution. Um, so I was thinking about a bunch of free speech debate that was going on and stuff around the profit, some, some internet act that, that kind of like says it reserves the right for, uh, internet media companies to like basically moderate things, but, um, it doesn't require them to do to do so and like doesn't require them to take down like violent speech so they have like a different set of rules than the um television companies and other kinds of media companies so anyway all this stuff kind of got me rethinking about like attention economics and the other kind of element there was all this like coverage of the potential influence of social media spend on the election and it just got me thinking about how like it seems that um, the more money you have, the more money you can use to like influence outcomes of elections or to like get people to buy the shit that you're selling or whatever, right? And that seemed true and like pretty, I don't know, unfair to me. So it's like, okay, what, like, this got me rethinking about this idea. If this is an exercise of power that's kind of unfair, what are ways you can kind of like dampen the effect of that? Because the definitely the concentration of, of money is not very democratic <laughs> um, or, or equal. So I started kind of thinking about that and it, it just led me down this kind of rabbit hole of thinking about all sorts of ways you can trade money for other forms of power. So the, this included things like um, spending money on advertising, spending money on political campaign contributions, spending money on lobbying, Spending money on lawyers to like reduce your risk of, you know, like breaking the law, spending money on accountants. So you have to pay less taxes and just like this whole set of things. It was like, um, and the more money you have, the, the more loopholes you have access to. So that, this, this whole like second pass on taxes led me to this idea. Okay. We, we just got to tax like all forms of the exercise of power. And then redistribute those proceeds per rata. And you can actually generate a ton of money uh, from that because a ton of money is spent on every year in like all those different categories that I mentioned. It's all it's lobbying. It's yeah, I, 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 I think it would be great to tax all of it. Um, the problem is it's pretty tough to do that, I think, in practice. Um, and one of the pieces of feedback that I got on this was like, okay, yeah, this is like from a theoretical standpoint kind of makes sense right but the problem is it would infringe on a bunch of people's uh first amendment rights because you're taxing their ability to like spend money distributing their speech and there's a bunch of precedents around how a tax on that might be unconstitutional so then that kind of got me back to the last thing i wrote which was about okay like how do you take kind of all those principles that might make you want to tax spending on things that are an exercise of power and work them into the existing system we have because you wouldn't have to do a constitutional amendment to do that and kind of like remediate some of the same problems. Um, the, the So where I kind of landed after all this work was we should, you know, we one thing we could do is have a radical kind of tax reform to the way that we do income taxes where 
we have a few basic principles where you could like you could have it basically be like continuously progressive. So for every marginal yeah. marginal dollar that you make, the tax rate goes up and it like really like kind of like jacks up towards the the higher the higher earnings. Um, but also for every marginal dollar that you earn, you are at the end of the day taking home more money. That was like a second principle. Um, another principle is just to treat all income equally. So like ordinary income, capital gains, inheritance. Um, one of the things I like about that is a lot of people talk about the wealth tax, but wealth tax has the same like kind of practicality issue to it. And also some potentially, Tricky second order effects. Um, if you do the like harbinger tax or like buy sell agreement on property, for example, I can imagine that people being like pretty destabilizing in terms yeah. of like how people like hold assets and, and price them and things. Um, so anyway, that was like another principle. And, and there were a few more in there that, um, I thought would be like, okay, like if you're going to design a tax system from scratch, how would you do it? What would the basic principles be? Um, and, and for this one, I can like made an interactive model. Um, where you could like go in and like tune all the parameters yourself and like mess around with it and kind of do the same like spreadsheet type of exercise where you compare your thing to baseline, see how it affects you because everyone wants to know that, see how it affects uh, the kind of like overall revenue generated. And but anyway, the, the idea is like I'm not an expert on this stuff, but I am a citizen of this country, and there's a bunch of data out there. I think it's cool for people to go and mess around with this stuff for themselves and play with it and think about it and see what they come up with. It seems like there's, on the one hand, like too much expertism and also too much people just yelling without saying anything yeah. like substantive. So, so economist Brian Kaplan's philosophy is something along the lines of don't tax things you want. And so I think he said, you know, income, consumption, investing. Let's try to not tax those or tax those less and just tax all the bad things. So, you know, pollution, cigarettes, I know things that are actively harmful uh, to people just tax those increasingly more. What do you say to that? I understand the appeal of that argument. You know, one of the things that I, I actually do like consumption tax if you do it in this sort of continuously progressive way. So one of the things with like the tax proposal I had was like, and in the income tax scenario, it was like for every marginal dollar that you earn, you pay a higher percentage in taxes, right? But you can imagine the consumption tax that operates the same way, which is not, uh, and maybe there's like a floor to when it kicks in. And I think one of the arguments a lot of people have against consumption taxes is that they are regressive. Um, but I think if you design it in the right way, you could do consumption taxes that don't have that problem. And I think they're pretty interesting. And like, you know, it may be things that, you know, you want to tax things that are unhealthy or you want to tax things that are, you know, have negative externalities for the environment or for future generations or whatever. So I don't know. I guess there are, there are a lot of elements to this thing that I like. Uh, just the the coming up with the, what is bad yeah. can be tough. Look to the government PNL, uh, for, you know, the data you saw, what was most surprising about how government spends money today or, or anything that's under misunderstood or underappreciated. So this is one of people probably a lot of people will not like me for saying, but one of the things that people love to criticize about government spending is like military spending, but at least we have the best military in the world. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know if we could have the same military for a lower price but 
and it's we I don't I don't know if it's like the biggest thing. Um, there's a ton that's spent on um, uh, things like uh, pensions and and things like that, which seems like it's only gonna be going up. Um, that seems pretty inefficient to me. That would I don't know in terms of like the spending stuff. There's a huge amount spent on stuff like pensions and yeah. like healthcare so, reimbursements and things like that. And then as you would expect, not a ton spent on stuff like education. If we had a better measure of efficacy for education spending, it would be easy to dump a ton more money in it. But my guess is the reason we don't spend more money on it is because we don't have a, we don't know how to spend more money and actually yeah. educate people. Right. And what would be your proposal for, pension fund like what replaces pensions or how do we the way the world is going we we kind of uh we've made everything so transactional and made everything into a service and so the idea that i feel like the idea used to be you you would just take care of your old family and now it's like not your responsibility to do that anymore so it either is on them or on the government or you know whoever whoever else like the employer that has to pay some of those pension payments. I don't know. I like the idea of spending more time with my yeah. with my mom and like I would I would like to have her like live with me and like take on some of the burden because I I would just get to spend more time with her too and that seems like a win win to me. But that's kind of like a a cultural value. I don't know how you get that adopted. Yeah. Like or even if it's a good idea to get that adopted yeah. more broadly. I don't. I don't have a great answer to that. You could also imagine, like, the one thing I've thought about a lot with like older folks is they just seem underutilized. I mean, this is this goes to this like um, serviceization of everything too, where I feel like we're kind of at like a low point in valuing the elder generation. Like, I look around and see people who they they just go to the internet with any question that they have and they can get great answers there but it means they're not going to ask like the grandparents the question of like how to do x for their kids that was a i think probably a pretty crucial role to have somebody in a society playing for a long time and i you know that not only um those people kind of like underutilized now but they probably feel less valued so something i've thought about is like okay if you thought about uh older folks as like as sort of a resource and like what what sort of knowledge and experience do they have that nobody else really has can you gainfully employ them uh in some way and like i don't you know i don't want to do the billy madison thing you know where there's like all these old people fucking making quilts in a sweatshop but you know Oh, people like telling stories and like sharing the things that they've learned and the things that they've seen. If there's some way to make that into like a productive workforce, that's you know even a part-time one. Teachers seems like a natural. Yeah, that, and yeah, teachers and then care for other people, yeah. right? Like care for the the sick and other elderly. That all seems like stuff that we really need. Yeah. Um, and so if we can compensate those people for that, maybe it takes some of the burden off of these other sources of um, providing for those folks. Yeah. Maybe help raise other kids or something. 
Yeah, I think that'd be cool. So there, there's a lot of different sub threads from your blog posts I want to go down, but first I want to zoom out on, on the highest level and ask you sort of if you could wave a wand and, and the world was listening to your, your idea, it was, you know, wrapped attention listening to your ideas. What are the ideas that you think are your ideas that you think are most impactful or that you want other people to know or implement or, or be aware of? I, that it seems a little presumptuous to like want to wave a wand and have my ideas implemented. I, I one of the things I've tried to do with when I put stuff out there is kind of show some of the method and go outside of my comfort zone. I like the idea of lots of other people doing that and lots of other people kind of asking questions and trying to figure things out for yeah. themselves. I mean, I realize there's some amount of inefficiency there. Like not everyone should have to go figure out everything for themselves. But I think one, people are kind of like afraid to step outside of their official domain. Yeah. And I also think too, people are afraid to allow other people to step out of their respective domains. There's all this credentialing that happens and sort of who are you to, you know, you were doing X and now you're trying to do Y you shouldn't be doing that because you don't know anything about that. And I just think that's a bad yeah. vibe. <laughs> uh, so if there, if there was one idea I could get out there, I would, I would just love to see more people experimenting and, you know, trying new things and taking a, taking a step at figure things out, figuring things out for themselves. I, I like, I also, I, I run into this issue all the, where people are always coming to ask me for advice. Yeah. I don't like, I don't feel like people. I should be giving people advice because probably the advice I give is not that relevant to them. And right. it's this position of like, I want to learn from you too. Like yeah. what, um, you know, some of the Zen uh, monks or like, you know, the Kung Fu masters from the movies, they're kind of like assholes where like you ask them the question and they'll just ask you a riddle back or like <laughs> just like smack you in the back of the head with a broom or something. Yeah. But I think the meta story there is you shouldn't be asking me what I think. Yeah. You've written you know, many dozens of blog posts, which is you know, a lot of independent research you spend a lot of time doing. What threads unify uh, some, some of these explorations? Like how, how do you sort of make sense of all the research and work that you've done? How, how would you sort of explain it or describe it? What, what binds it together? I thought a lot about uh, dignity. I had this the this one teacher in college who I did these sort of great books seminars with where we just read the classics of Western civilization and beyond. And one of the questions she always asked when we were writing a paper was like, "What, what, what do you what do you think is the author's view of human dignity?" And I think that's a question that um, I've always asked, uh, kind of of myself or like of you know other works that I encounter. I think that just kind of searching for that one, cause I kind of want to know that and it, you know, answering that maybe gives you some solace <laughs> in life, but I'm not sure. Like, I think people get overly attached to it. Like I'm not, I, it's one of those things where I think it's a placebo probably, um, or like a good carrot, like a good carrot to make up, to motivate a lot of people to productive work. I'm not sure there's anything actually there, uh, having spent most of my life thinking about it. But you know, it's a. It's, I think it's something everyone needs to figure out for themselves. And it's a, good, it's a good question to ask. What led you to that conclusion? 
Again, because you you know work in AI, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean that that is kind of one of the, the kind of the place I landed at the the bleak uh, view of it. Um, just thinking a lot about, I mean, when people talk about dignity, they, they talk about like, okay, what is it that makes you uniquely you know human? What's the uniquely human dignity? Uh, what is it that, you know, kind of separates you from an animal or from a machine or something? Having seen kind of like a lot of technological innovation, I'm not confident there's anything, um, that I can do that a machine won't someday be able to do better. You know, like I can, there's a lot of jobs in the past that have been totally automated. There's, um, a lot of jobs today that are on their way there. My job someday I can imagine being totally automated. Okay, so like maybe no, there's a point where nobody has to work, and then what do people do? Is it, are they going to create art, or you know make make music or or whatever? And I think for all these things, eventually you can imagine just being totally outclassed by uh, a piece of software that is designed to do that. Um, and if that's the case, like what do you kind of attach yourself to as a source of dignity like there's there's not really anything left and like two two other things i guess besides the ai uh well, i guess that i i've i've latched onto as interesting since i kind of had this you know nobody's gonna have to not only will you not have to contribute in these ways even if you really wanted to contribute to the benefit uh, and survival of people around you it wouldn't be necessary. Like if you did nothing, everyone around you would be just as well off, if not better off than if you tried to help, right? It's like the trivial examples right now, if I want to go play in the NBA, just not going to happen. Um, so, okay. So how do I respond to that? Do I go kill myself because I can't play in the NBA? Well, I have all these other things to do today where I still can feel like I'm contributing. Um, but if I imagine a world where that's the only thing to do, yeah. maybe it's still fun to play basketball, even if I, I'm totally outclassed by like all the best people that play basketball. But so like two uh, kind of things I've come across that I think are interesting. If you have this sort of perspective, one is uh, man's search for meaning, um, which is this this, super famous book. And Victor Frankl, I think is the author. Um, and in that, it's it's a story about he, when he was in a concentration camp. And what's interesting about that it, is it is sort of a version of this thought experiment where he talks about being stripped of every uh, sort of source of meaning that you might have. Where, like, there's no work. There's no art. There's no, like, there's no way to find meaning in all these things you would, outside of the concentration camp, possibly find meaning. There's no, like children or whatever right like it's just totally bleak and for him the sort of answer is just not devolving into an animal and not acting on those opportunities where like you place your own survival above the person next to you just because you're treating them as an equal is sort of his answer to what uh dignity almost is and i also i saw this movie recently that kind of had a similar uh vibe to it which was Paddleton, and it, it's a really awesome movie with Ray Romano is in it. I, I love Ray Romano; he's hilarious. But he's kind of like what I like about Ray Romano is he's nice. Uh, he's not like making mean jokes; yeah. they're like mostly dad jokes, but I think they're hilarious. 
And he's in this movie about these two friends who are like 50 or 60. And it's kind of like a platonic love story. But these two guys who are kind of, you know, it's like, imagine the, like the office space workers, like just as like 60 year old, like bums that are like dead end jobs. And they like watch movies together. And one of them is dying of terminal cancer. And Ray Romano's sense of humor is sort of juxtaposed with that, which is works really well. But I was listening to this interview with the the guys that made it, and they they were saying that one of their goals was to kind of strip away from their own lives everything that they think is interesting. Like they have the oppor- they get to make movies for a living. It's fucking awesome, right? Um, so they're like, all right, we want to take all of this away and kind of ask this question of what is the life well lived. So that's I don't know. This is a thing that has been on my mind recently. Is like I feel very fortunate to have access to all these opportunities which i think are still pretty interesting and challenging to me but i like the experiment of stripping all of that away yeah and thinking about that yeah it is because i i see you thinking about dignity in the sense of you know when you think about your equality or you know reducing inequality is important to you and also you're a fan of basic income i think you can make this argument uh about that which has nothing to do with dignity and more is about like practical like not stable yeah like stabilizing a civilization um and you know preventing the pitchforks from tearing everything down um there's a quote i saw about this which is like you know eventually uh you know with enough uh growth and, and freedom things will tend towards inequality and you will either get a distribution of wealth through uh, welfare programs or distribution of poverty through revolution, um, which I think is rings pretty true to me. Like if you let things go too far, it will all equalize, but you'll just lose a bunch of the yeah. good things which you've built up. Yeah. And maybe Denny's the wrong word, or, but it seems somewhat uh, apparent that we're suffering from a meaning crisis of, you know, suicide, depression, addiction, I don't know if dignity is the, the thing that they need, but, but meaning on some level, like even just sense making. Yeah. Although another issue I have with, I mean, this stuff is all complicated and it's fun to think about because I can argue against myself in like pretty good ways on this. One of the things that I've heard um, that I don't love as a critique of something like basic income, and I'm not like a diehard basic yeah. income guy, but I do like redistribution of wealth because i do i agree with this premise that like even if like suppose everyone is like exactly equal in skills you just do enough iterations of rolling the dice and the lucky people are going to be way richer than the unlucky people and that's not stable over the long run um but one of the things i don't like as a critique of something like basic income is like well if we do that where are all these people going to get their dignity from and i just don't find that argument that compelling there are so many other ways to find dignity than a job and most people i'm pretty sure hate their job and would never do it unless they had to do it to survive or to like pay for their kids to survive but Um, but social standing in society do you think that we'll just come up with new ones or or that it's overrated because we we have some stigmas against unemployment it it seems like we have attached it to we have like socially engineered attaching this idea of dignity to things that are good for civilization in a world of scarcity you know if if we get 
efficient and productive enough, and if we have redistribution of the proceeds of that uh, productivity, I don't think the dignity thing is going to be the problem. I mean, it, now, if you have somebody who's 40 years old and they've been told all 40 years of their life and everyone they respect has attached dignity to a job, it's probably pretty hard to change that person's mind. But I think if you're starting with like kids, you could train them on tons of like ideas of dignity. They could be like playing video games. It could be playing music. It could be dancing. It could be just sitting and watching nature. Like yeah. it could be the it could be the uh, man's search for meaning version, where like the only thing you do is you don't be a dick to the other humans, right? And like that could be enough. People make this sort of argument against redistribution. Involves dignity, which on the one hand, I kind of agree with if you are, it's sentimental. Maybe it's tough to pull off, but I think it doesn't really hold water if you have like tabula rasa. Yeah. A couple of the threads I see you trying to pull in a lot of different pieces are one is sort of market failures and how to internalize externalities. Uh, and then also the sort of um, the paradox of sort of quantifying the unquantifiable and how we tend to try to get better and better, you know, metrics for... Yeah. This is... Okay, this is good, because this is another pet peeve of mine. This is one I've been thinking about writing something about. I am just just as much a critic of bad metrics as anyone, and I think, you know, and no metric is going to be perfect. Uh, and there's, like, I, I read this book a couple months ago, seeing, like, a state... Which is basically like a, a, a critique of centralized planning and kind of like industrialist thinking. And I think a lot of people read that book and the takeaway is, okay, metrics are never going to be perfect. Fuck metrics. I am not really that <laughs> ready to get rid of metrics. Like metrics really, like you can optimize the hell out of a metric once you pick it. And you can just motivate a ton of people in an amazing way. Like the number of people you can coordinate and the amount of activity you can coordinate around a number is just like unbelievable. It's like one of the coolest things I think people have done. Like capitalism, amazing, right? Like the the things that capitalism has achieved, is it's in, they're incredible. Now, I'm also a huge critic of a lot of parts of capitalism. I think the metrics that we use today are really flawed in a lot of ways. But I don't want to just get rid of all the metrics. I also I don't think we'll ever have perfect metrics, but I think we can introduce some more nuance and move things in the right direction rather than just going back to this yeah. world of, of, of no measurement of everything. And so I see a lot of... I mean, I, I critique a lot. I, I critique metrics all the time, but I'm hesitant to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah. So let's talk about some metrics within capitalism that you think aren't that great or some of the incentives that aren't that great and what are some better metrics you think we should adopt? The main one that really frustrates me is just the, um, just consumption. Capitalism is really good at getting people to just consume more and more and more and more. And I get that that leads to economic growth, which has done a lot of really great things. You know, the world today in a lot of ways looks better for I, arguably a lot of people, like arguably the majority of people than it did pre-capitalism. 
that's a debated point, but uh, you know, you could, if you're one of the people that believes that, um, you know, you could say there's a lot to like a, about it. But my hesitation around that is, I kind of feel like we're stealing all that wealth from future generations and just take, and that's the externality. Um, so that could be just you know the amount of like garbage that we're producing or the impact that we're having on the planet or whatever, and that makes me very uncomfortable and just the it's so grotesque the excess of it like just look around and the amount of human behavior and garbage production which amounts to just me sending you a signal about my skills and like taste and wealth when if there's only information being exchanged we're doing it in such a hugely inefficient way and that really bothers me because it just seems it's like so unnecessary the good news is if a lot of that is unnecessary we could fix it right if it's just like a, a way we're kind of like culturally valuing things and how do we fix we tax yeah. it a little bit i don't know how do we fix well that? yeah so that's the the stick approach maybe there's like a way to kind of get people to um value non-consumption in some way the problem with that is tough to make a business out of that and so I don't have a huge amount of confidence in the, you know, some business that's going to get people to stop making so much garbage. But that, yeah, that is the main thing that irks me about this. And then also just the fact that the other thing, okay, two other things that irk me about this. One is this idea that if you were to try to um, tax overconsumption, people feel like it's their like it's their natural born right as a human to consume whatever they want. It's like their freedom of expression. Like, because the way I signal to you is by buying things, nobody can tell me what I can and can't buy or what's wasteful or what's not because it's my right and, like, my freedom to do that. And so I think it it introduces this weird, like, hesitance to put a check on a lot of this just really disgusting excess um, so that, that the consumption piece of it really bothers me. And then just the I, the the fact that it seems, I don't know, I mean, maybe this is just my skewed kind of bubble, but I look at the the way that um, sort of wealth distributes in a free capitalist society, and it seems pretty inarguable to me. That, I mean, just compounding interest, right? Like, what more do you need to know? It's going to lead to tons of inequality and I don't think that's stable over the long run and we we also just seem to have this hesitance generally to accept that and that that seems like a miss how should we think about sort of the optimal level of inequality like what's the max level of inequality <laughs> it's okay but there, I mean there's <laughs> there are different ways of doing that that people smarter than me have written about I don't have a great answer to that I think it's certainly one where all the poor people don't get pissed off and right. kill all the rich people. Yeah. <laughs> totally. um, I don't, it's not, like I don't know how you like come up with that number. Yeah. I, I I more think about just I don't know like calibrating it. I don't think there'll ever be a perfect answer, which is kind of what I write about from like a principles approach. Right. Like so, like a principle I like is like don't tax anyone up until the like zero taxes up to the living wage. That seems like a good principle to me or yeah. like the continuously progressive tax, every marginal dollar, like greater percentage tax seems pretty reasonable. 
tax investment the same as ordinary income versus inheritance seems pretty reasonable. I don't know how much it matters what the actual DAOs are yeah. as long as people kind of feel it's yeah. more fair, right. but I've never designed it. I'm sure there's tons of other problems yeah. that, you know, I've never implemented it. I'm sure there's lots of problems that come up. It, it seems that many people would, would want to live in a society that uh, was more equal, even if everyone was worse off, including them. Um, and I guess because we have sort of this natural instinct to you know, compare if you took that as given, or at least some people would prefer that. You think all people would? I no, 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 I didn't yeah, say all. I said many. Okay. Some, some, yeah, okay. some yeah. people. I love all people. No, no, no I don't know if that's a good. Yeah, I, I just say that yeah. to say that there are some times where we have uh, tendencies that are counterintuitive or don't actually work in our interest, and I don't have a good framework for when we should overcome them versus uh, design for them, if that makes sense. So, one like, you know, we used to do like, like revenge is a really human instinct, right? And but we've gotten pretty good at like we don't do like public beheadings anymore. Like we've gotten, I mean, we still have lots of you know like justice based, in quotes based you know rich, retributive justice. But we um, we've overcome certainly public beheadings. Um, and I, I I don't know. Do you have a framework for when we sort of overcome our human tendencies versus design for them in um, and not expect them to change? Um, I, yeah, I I kind of get where you're going with this one. I guess, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I don't think that we need to get to perfect, right. you know, equality of yeah, but, wealth distribution. And, but are we okay ca- capping some prosperity to, you know, reduce inequality or would you say, hey, that's not even a trade-off? I, I reject the premise. I haven't really thought about that as much. I kind of see it as a, it is going to be better from every, like we are at the point where doing more of it would actually result in a society that's better for everyone. Yeah. So like I, I think we're so far from the point of turning the dial where we get more equity and everyone's worse off. Like I, that seems just so far past where we are. So we get more that, equity and we don't cap prosperity. Or yeah, I think there, there's a growth. there's a huge amount of room to kind of like turn that dial up on the equity without decreasing everyone's sort of like overall uh, good that we should go there i mean like that's that's a good point to get to to me is like yeah. and then sure from there we could have a public debate about it right yeah. of like how do we want to dial it sure. but like i think at the very least we should get to the point where it's more equitable and better off for everyone yeah. and the stability part is how i think it would be better off for everyone because i think if the, if things keep going the way they're going it does not feel stable to me just because i don't have a framework for how to think about whether we are there or so far away from there how do you think about like what, what gives you that confidence or how much, I don't know, just how much money do you need to spend? Right. Like I think that it's a very intuitive, I don't have like a rational, uh, lock heart, lock, you know, like locked in argument for this, but most of the behavior I see from people who are pretty wealthy is either really gross in terms of like purely trying like like almost everyone would say like that is just like a disgusting pursuit of power or it's just like kind of competitive and i think if those people had a measuring stick where they could still do the same measurement of like okay how much money do i make versus you as long as the we feel good about how much of it is getting taken from both of us and given to somebody else and we can still compare amongst ourselves I think those people would be okay with that too. Like maybe not, but maybe I just have observed a very limited set of people on that 
judgment is totally flawed, but most uh, pursuit of wealth I see, it's more of like either this kind of like disgusting pursuit of power or just like the game of it. Yeah. And I think both of those are kind of resilient to the type of changes I envision. Yeah. What do you say to the critique? And I think you have a little bit in your post where some people cr- critique capitalism that it is the the, um, the paperclip maximizer, that it just keeps optimizing for, for that function. And, and if we don't do something pretty soon, it's, <laughs> it's going to steal even more from future generations in a uh, path dependent way. In, in, if it hasn't already. Yeah. I think there's a lot of merit to that argument. And I mean, that's kind of the, the problem, like the metrics that we have are not nuanced enough. And I think that's the way things are kind of going. So I don't, I don't really have a counter argument or or suggestion of, and nobody does, but better metrics or how do we even get to the points where we're thinking about sustainability? Yeah, that's a tough question. I mean, that's a, that's the hard question is, can you get there with better metrics or do you need like fundamentally different values? Yeah. Better metrics seems more practical to me and yeah. not fully explored. How would you even recommend we think about better metrics? Like, Well, like I like this idea of doing the extrapolation and seeing where things end up and then thinking about the sort of inverse function, which is, that's, that's I mean, that's how I thought a lot about the tax stuff was like, okay, if you have this, compounding interest exponential function function of accumulating wealth what would be the sort of like function that inverts a ton of that and redistributes back and kind of like counteracts that so it's it's kind of like a systems thinking approach we may not be able to successfully do it it's a it's a very delicate uh balancing act to be playing but and how do we model something like the environment in terms of internalizing yeah exactly I don't know. I mean, we've we've figured out the capitalism one, uh, but you know, you could argue that that's just kind of uh, it's a very sort of like natural thing. And the, one of the things you mentioned before to kind of get to the, I think you were asking before, like you know, like what what should we what should we shoot for in terms of like valuing? One of the things I think is cool that people have done is this idea of compassion is kind of like a fuck you to nature because like you. I think you could argue this either way, but I think there are a lot of cases where you could imagine um, like some human where it's like very high degree of uh, provability, like probability provable that they will contribute zero to the benefit of the species um, and they're just dead weight. And I think people have... I mean, like a lot of people in the world right now would still say it's still worth helping that person out and like saving them, even even though you know they're they're not uh, a boon to the rest of civilization, which to me feels like a rejection of like kind of uh, the survival of the fittest and the the kind of uh, betterment of the species. And I just think it's cool that people have sort of rejected nature in that way and yeah. decided. They don't want to do, play that game. I, yeah. Like that's, I think that's like. What's well, interesting because when people done. talk about rejecting nature, they usually mean it in a very negative way, um, and they usually mean something like the opposite. Like they assume that nature is just like you know mother nature. I don't know, like super compassionate. Yeah, yeah. And we're like you know shitting on it with our garbage or whatever. But so it's cool to hear or to think about it. And yeah, I think that yeah, I like, like the idea. If you think people are oppressive, wait till you like hear about nature. <laughs> it's like yeah. Uh, <laughs> 
Well, a lot of, you know, you look at early mythology and religion and stories, and it's all about people kind of um, trying to make sense of this cruel, indifferent nature. Then once people get more, you know, like civilization gets more teched up, people get more powerful, people are the, you know, the thing to worry about. People also develop this compassion, which is kind of superior to nature, which is really admirable, in my opinion. Comes from Christianity, or I think the Christian myth is like is like that. Uh, well, I would call it a myth, but um, that is the thing. I, I I think that is cool about that. Like I'm more of a practical type of thinker, and so like if I if I imagine myself like thousands of years ago. I probably would have come up with something more like uh, the Torah, where it's just like, okay, everything sucks, life is suffering, we got to figure out some laws that help us deal with this, right? And it's just like, how do we make the best of this? What's cool about the Christian myth is they're like, okay, the nature God is a, kind of a dick. Let's now just imagine a God that's made in the image of man. And what will we want if we're going to make our own God? What do we want that God to look like? And the chief virtue is compassion, right? And that's that's a cool rewrite of uh, a lot of religion. I think that predated it. So yeah, I, I think that's admirable. I, I definitely would. I don't think I would have come up with that. I yeah. think that's cool that somebody had that idea. Yeah. Do you think religion gets a bad rap in the same way that capitalism gets a bad rap? Like people don't just fully appreciate what it's what it's. I mean, I understand um, the motives behind it, and I could imagine coming up with some religion, but I also think it's like totally distasteful that a lot of it still exists. Really? I, the, for the same, I, I have my problem with religion is my problem with a lot of politicians. I just don't like this idea of lying to people, <laughs> even if it's for the best. You know, like e- even if the placebo effect works, yeah. I just don't have the stomach. For telling those kind of lies. So should we as a culture say like, hey, taking it easy placebo, like stop searching for it. Here's something else. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't like it would be interesting to to say, okay, all of the ideas we've had so far about what dignity is in terms of you know creating art or working or whatever. None of those were actually it. It might be something else. Or, you know, what does that kind of free you to, to do? How does that change the way you think about going about your life? And the, there are folks who've thought a lot about this and their kind of ideas like, well, it's just, you know, like experiencing the universe or yeah. like dancing or, you know, like the doing the thing that nobody else is going to see. And I also think that not, the not doing harm piece provided that we have made sufficient advancements where doing nothing is not a form of doing harm. There's a context to kind of my claims about dignity. I can, I can see why, I can see why we've attached the notions we've done to it. I I would just say it's more, I think the lie is that it is something like out there (laughs) um, versus it's just this idea that we came up to represent uh, the set of things you do to help, and not do harm to the people around you. Hmm. The, we're just talking about mythology. Uh, I think Kevin Kelly said some of the lines of like, 
with things like AI, you know, virtual reality, sort of emerging technologies, we will need new mythologies to help us uh, make sense of this. And you've written a bit about narrative and, and AI. How have you thought about the need for whether there's a need for mythology, narrative, and what that looks like with some of these new technologies? Well, I'm, I, I like the idea of people going into the virtual. A lot of people write it off as, you know, not as good as yeah, not as doing something. Yeah, but uh, a lot of the people who say that have a pretty good R, right? And so they don't have to worry about VR, but a lot of people's R sucks. And so they <laughs> VR is pretty attractive. Um, and so I, I think it's like a little dismissive to say you can't like... yeah. You know, just be fully in the VR experience. Yeah. It, and, is there something about the real world that's more inherently meaningful than the virtual? Like, if I'm just looking at this chalkboard, is that more meaningful than looking at the virtual world? I mean, I don't know. It's kind of virtual already, in my opinion. Like, you're, you're by the time it hits your brain, it's already been, you know, pro- information that's processed top down, bottom up. Like, every, you're, you're, you don't have access to R anyway. So it's kind of a weird debate, in my opinion. Um, and I don't like when people write it off, but yeah, I, I like the idea of people going deep into the, into the virtual. And I think that's, it's like a really fruitful direction for things to go. And I, I just think it's sentimental to attach so much, uh, experience or sorry, attach so much value to the, to the R. <laughs> Another interesting thing I, I learned about recently that comes to mind on this topic I used to have this uh, this sense of obligation as a like the human species um, because life I don't know life is pretty cool like human life I'm I'm actually more into just life general than I think I am into human life but life is pretty cool I think and there's going to be a time when the sun burns out and probably like the only species that would get all the other species off the planet when the sun burns out is humans. And so I I always felt like there was this kind of obligation. I just learned about these things, tardigrades, and they're kind of like a little like protein thing, which is like, they're like alive and they can survive like on an asteroid in deep space. And so now my bets are kind of, I don't, I don't feel like I have to bet as hard on the human species Mm -hmm. to like, keep life going if you think life is a good thing yeah like the tardigrades kind of right. can get it done which is just another random aside on this like do you think that should be baked into mythology i mean because religion is pretty human-centric or you know yeah i could imagine two different new religions one which is the religion which is okay humans are responsible for making sure life gets off of the planet earth and like let's have a mandate around that and say like it's our obligation to make sure all life continues after Earth. Or another one, which is like, humans need to stop fucking shit up. But <laughs> we'll be okay because uh, the tardigrades will got our back. And so maybe it's actually not the worst thing in the world if the human species destroys itself. Because it'll be a boon for all other life. And there is this other escape hatch off the planet yeah. for other for other forms of life. And say more about AI. Like, how should we interact with it? How should we understand it? How should we, like, in, culturally, how should we do it? Like, oh, man. Are there movies or books right now that represent? I think her is a really good kind of depiction of it, where it just, <laughs> it just leaves you behind. And that's a, that informs a lot of the way I think about it. 
And like my relation to UI or like the NBA is another one that I go to a lot, which yeah. is like no way I can compete, right? Uh, and what's cool about her is the, yeah, the AI just gets bored and bounces. I think those are pretty interesting. The so those are two ways I like to think about it. I also like to think of capitalism as an AI, where like there's no person that really can change the way it's going. It's just this process that's been unleashed and it, it's going in a certain direction. It has these tendencies and it kind of dictates all the interactions that we have um, with each other and is outside of our control already. To me, that's a good lesson of, you know, what can happen when you unleash one of these things. It, it happens to move relatively slowly yeah. right now, but you can imagine if that was moving a lot faster, how yeah. it would be pretty bad for the species. So I, I think it's good to have some reservations about AI and yeah. I, I kind of would use capitalism as the instruction point on that. Um, and it, it it does good things too, like I said, but what do you think about technological determinism or where would you put yourself? Like, do you think certain things are inevitable? Do you think history has, you know, technological direction or how do you think about that? Well, this kind of goes into my views of capitalism. I do think things which are efficient will be invented by somebody. It's tough to like, you know, as a, as somebody who likes, building things and solving problems. I feel like you go through this phase where like you get really excited about doing that at like a big scale. And then you realize at a big scale, that's good. Somebody will just do that. I mean, there is this problem if everybody thought that way, would anything get done? But I don't think practically that'll ever happen. Once you kind of make that leap, then it's just tough to get excited about building technical solutions to things. Or at least to, to find meaning in it. Like, okay, you can put a bunch of money in your own pocket, but it, you're taking that from somewhere. And, like, is that something that you want to spend a bunch of time doing? And, like, if it's not, you know, historically significant, you know, how interesting... Like, there's... Silicon Valley particularly has this kind of view that... It, you know, everything we're doing here is like amazing in the future, you know, and there's not really like many other great places to put capital to grow it. But it's also, I don't know, I find as a individual participant, it's not super rewarding. So the, the thing that, and I was thinking about this and, uh, and you, you know, your, your tastes change over the years, but I was kind of thinking about like, okay, what do I, what do I, what do I like doing if it's not, if it doesn't matter whether or not I did it at the end of the day. And something I thought about as like a kind of interesting counterpoint is uh, panache. And that's, to me, that's just the idea of, okay, maybe something is going to happen either way, but there is still the chance to kind of do it in a way that somebody else would not do it. Mm. And that can be kind of interesting to do, I think, as an individual. Yeah. Um, like panache, like certain style. Yeah, just like a certain style of doing something. So when I build something, I kind of think about it sometimes with that lens of like, okay, something like this will exist either way. What's the way that it would, like, it wouldn't exist in a certain way unless I did it? Um, and that can be kind of a fun game to play. Maybe it's not super productive, but 
how does Finn relate to that for you? Well, I mean, I, the, the other thing I pivot around is working with my friends. Um, and so Sam has been a friend of mine for a long time. Um, and the timing worked out where we could work on something together. Well, I think, and when we started working on what we were doing, it, some of the stuff that we were, we were doing was a little more controversial in terms of like, in some ways it was like a bet against um, a lot of AI being like practically ready today. Um, and that was a little sort of more contrarian. I think pretty quickly a lot of stuff has kind of caught up to that. So if you look at it today, I don't know what you would make as like a, a style argument for it. But I think when we started it, um, it felt more that way. Yeah. I want to get back to the, the idea that if it's efficient, it will exist. And I'm curious to then you think when evaluate sort of capitalism, technological determinism as it relates to social relationships and you have a sort of unique vantage point create, having created Venmo, which sort of, Oh, another thing I started, that was another one where I pivoted around a friend, right? right? Like a, purely, I was just telling some kids at the college like this weekend, they were really like, why did you start Venmo? I was just, my friend Ikram wanted to work on something and I was like down to do anything to work with a friend. Whenever the idea of like a Yelp for people comes up or like, you know, ISA income share agreements for everything, people sort of, or, you know, recording conversations and then creating a, I don't know, like everything's being recorded. People are always like, you know, basically everything that's in Black Mirror. <laughs> people are like, oh no, that's dystopian. Do, do you sort of view that, hey, all that stuff will exist and more? Well, I mean, a lot of that stuff kind of does exist. It's just, I like, the one thing I think would be cool is for the reputation stuff, there is like a lot of, you know, societies have always had reputation as a way to, you know, for for like you to just go down the street and like trust somebody else yeah. that you're going to do commerce with. Like you rely a lot on reputation. And I think... There was a time when you interacted with a small enough set of people that you could have a bunch of that in your own brain. And then like in the, you know, the, your friends would have some of that knowledge. You can kind of get by on that. Now we just live in this world that's so much more complicated. Like the number of people you interact with, like how many people's car have you gotten into this year? And you have no idea if they're a serial, serial killer or not. Like that's pretty cool. Um, I think. It enables a lot of really cool things to happen. So that is, I mean, that's kind of like a Yelp for people, right? Now, one thing that would be cool, I think, is private corporations weren't, like, harvesting all of that uh, value from that. And so, like, you know, imagine if um, it was more of, like, a communal, you know, entity that owned that reputation for everyone. You know, I guess that's the, in some ways, the... The Chinese approach is the state does own it, but it, the state feels a little more top-down run relative to here in the U.S. But it would be cool to imagine, like, you know, to, like, probably everyone thinks it'd be really cool to have, like, a blockchain version of that. I think there's, I know, it's probably kind of like a tired idea, but I think that is actually pretty cool to think about how would that work, and then what would the the risks of such a system be, and then what would the checks be against those risks, and, like, how would you design that in a way where... Um, it was like a little bit more bottoms up, but afforded people, you know, the trust that they need to go about their lives, but also didn't have a lot of the flaws of, um, like, like, so another, 
related to this trust thing, you know, people can change. You don't want to have a mark on your record forever. I was just talking to somebody about um, uh, the prison system, and they said to me that one of the biggest problems with the prison system is the reintegration into, um, you know, society after you get out of prison. And there's just, you know, you talk about, like, bias inherent in algorithms. Pretty much any decent job is going to do a background check and immediately filter you out if you have ever been in prison. And so, you know, you have these people, and I've met people who have been in jail for, like, a long time. Like, there's some, not all of them, but a lot of the people I've met, they're some of the nicest, smartest, like, just awesome people I've ever met really thoughtful and just and they're they just can't um escape this sort of like flag on their reputation and we're like they did some stupid shit when they were 14 but how different are you now than when you were 14 years old right like you're a completely different person the reputation was really interesting it's a, it's a cool hard problem obviously clearly tons of cool things can happen when you have this reputation score for everyone you interact with but you want to think about things like how do you wipe it clean and allow people to like, you know, escape some random bad thing that they did yeah. at one point in their life. But is is a fair litmus test that hey, if someone if, so, if something seems efficient but is dystopian, where it's like you know, rating ex girlfriends or something, or like you know, uh, I mean, take every episode of Black Mirror, that it will exist at some point if it doesn't already exist now, if it's efficient. Well, I wonder how efficient that, like, I mean, that's efficient according to, like, this one metric, but uh, I have a little, I mean, yeah, if we, sure, if we never um, updated our models for efficiency, I could totally see a bunch of that stuff existing. The question is, how likely is it that we do some updates to what efficient means and come up with some better numbers, and then that kind of changes the shape? Is that going back to the earlier conversation about metrics? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That value? Well, you're talking about efficiency, right? Like, is that system efficient? Maybe if you measure it in a certain way, it's really efficient. But probably in a lot of other ways, it's very inefficient um, if you have the right measurement. Well, I guess efficient meaning, like, if there's a market for it. Like, if people want to rate people, will it exist? You know, like, yeah, but the, I guess the question is, like, will it actually continue to? Like, maybe people want that kind of just to like think about it a little bit more and like try to argue against myself there are a lot of things that I think are pretty bad for people like the main thing I see that is really bad is people just always want to well not people just always it's gross generalization but generally I think a lot of problems happen when people optimize for like this second satisfaction of desire versus kind of like longer term yeah um, and you can imagine, sorry, a lot of the efficiencies that we end up like optimizing for are going to be like satisfaction of short-term desire. Yeah. I think that capitalism does kind of have a bias yeah. towards that. You have a whole blog post about optimizing for local maxima. Yeah. And I think that's a, it's, it's, that's a tricky problem, but this is another reason I like the, um, some of this redistributive stuff. I think one of the inputs to that is kind of your event horizon and how much opportunity you see in the future. And in a lot of cases, you know, while as an outsider, it may seem totally irrational to choose that short-term desire over long-term. Maybe you put yourself in the position of the person making that decision. You're so discounting long-term opportunity because you actually don't have that much of it that all those little micro 
decisions in the moment are rational to choose. I do think that, you know, kind of giving people more opportunity, figuring out how to like get them bought into that. This also goes to um, one of the sort of things I think is tough to disentangle about uh, the misinformation sort of conversation that's going on. One of the interesting points I've heard about this is, um, you know, there's only a certain set of people for whom accurate information is valuable, right? And it doesn't make any sense to invest in getting accurate information if it's not going to improve your position in life. And so this, again, I think is one of those things that, that gets me thinking, how do we kind of redistribute opportunity and like how many other problems would that actually help solve if we could do that that seem like separate problems today? But I wonder if just solving that kind of uh, giving people more opportunity thing would, would would solve a lot of these other problems, which seem like kind of in a totally different yeah. domain. And do you, when you unbundle opportunity, what does, it, what does it look like money? Does it look like education? Does it look like mindset? What is that? Well, there's a good set of things right if i think about and uh, like not everyone kind of uh lucks into all all three of those but you know i would say i kind of lucked into life with some sort of uh, whether it was like friends family cultural but like something that gave me a set of values where like i kind of valued hard work and i thought that if i work harder i would do better in life and i valued uh, being nice to other people. Right? And I thought that was a good thing. And, um, but that's like something that I kind of like lucked into, which would be like the, uh, the value piece of it. Um, and, uh, you know, knowledge, I think is another, is another one clearly on the list that you want to think about, like how do you get people, more people access to like good knowledge and then money. Yeah, sure. Money, like all those, those are like the three big inputs in my opinion. I don't like if there's any others that you can think of, but those are like, Definitely three distinct yeah. ones, I think. Sort of like a psychological sovereignty or something. You're not having to deal with all trauma or, I don't know, just sort of being lucky that have a stable. Yeah. It's interesting, too, to think about how those, like a good thing in thought experience, experiments, I think, is to think about how um, those sort of like trade against each other. And like if you're running thought experiments, of like, okay, suppose we're doing a lot more economic redistribution. Yeah. Does that change how other forms of opportunity people invest in their own children and friends or whatever, right? Like you can imagine a world where we're like hyper redistributive of money. And then all the people who, you know, got, got lucky are just training their kids to be way smarter or something than everyone else. And you still have all this inequality, even though you're um, redistributing the the economic wealth, but it's a cool, I, I like that thinking about the three of those things and trying to think about how they trade against each other. Yeah. We talked about AI as sort of, you know, uh, or capitalism as an AI. You also have this piece about uh, tribalism as a predictive model. Um, oh, yeah. Talk about what you're, what you're trying to do there. This is something I want to write more about, actually, because it kind of goes to the um, this thing I was, this critique I want to write about seeing as a state. But... There are probably a couple of different aspects to it. Like one, people just want to feel like they're they're part of something bigger than themselves, I think, and they want to feel like they belong and 
you know, people want other people to listen to them and care about them. That feels good. I think that's pretty indisputable. The thing I, I was thinking about with uh, tribalism um, as a predictive model was it's kind of a like it, I had this idea after I read this book by Alison Gopnik, uh, the philosophical baby, and she talked about norms as a way for people to reduce uncertainty and pre- like better predict the behavior of other people that they're interacting with. And tribalism, I think, is a way for you to kind of like signal which group you belong to and which set of norms you hold. And that can be sort of a way for you, if you surround yourself with a bunch of people in your tribe, it's a lot easier for you to predict everyone else's behavior and make sense of the world which is increasingly like uncertain and complicated. That last point I think is something I've been thinking about with the scene like a state book where, you know, there's this critique of, okay, you, the problem with a lot of uh, 20th century modern industrial society was this top down view of trying to organize something which abandoned the view on the ground and would think about like, organizing a huge number of people into like tax ID numbers or something, or like looking at city streets from above rather than like how to navigate them on the ground and like making it orderly from the top. And the idea is like this top down view is what the state had to do to make sense of a huge number of citizens. But it, that perspective was kind of forced upon the individual actors within uh, the society and didn't necessarily make sense to them. The thing I've been thinking about that I want to write about is I actually think that increasingly every person has to see more like the state of last century because you have to, you know, you're, the number of different people that you interact with is so much greater. You're not just interacting with like the 20 people or 150 people in your village. You're interacting every year with thousands and thousands of, of people and you have to make sense of all of them. So I actually think that you're going to, you're going to hit in your own brain, the same limits that the state hit when it was trying to organize countries of millions of people. And you're going to have to develop a set of abstractions to make sense of that. And I think the, the tribalism thing is like sort of like one crude way to do it. Um, but I do think, people are going to have to figure out a way to deal with this increasing complexity in the world. And the answer is not, you know, go back to only interacting with 20 people. I don't think. This is just, I'm thinking a lot about sort of metrics and their, you know, whether a utopian society has zero measurements or, or, you know, seeing like a state, you know, infinite measurements or, or a lot of measurements. And, one sort of framework that maybe someone else came up with and I took is basically something along the lines of, um, you know, the saying like, uh, I'm going to botch it a little bit. Like, uh, you know, in my family, I'm a communist in my town. I'm a Democrat in my you know city. I'm conservative in my country. I'm libertarian or something like as, as things scale, you know, our, our behaviors and re- like relationships, uh, change. Like we can, we can, yeah, like you said, we can only take 20 people into account, not, you know, 8 billion. And so basically there's this framework of uh, keep your tribalism out of my markets and your market thinking out of my tribes. And so maybe, you know, on our family level, we will act like me and my family are not going to, uh, you know, have an income share agreement or not going to measure our, uh, you know, relative rankings or 
or even even do all these subtle things that Facebook and Twitter ha- have us doing necessarily. Um, so keep your marketing out of my tribes, but uh, your tribal thinking, you know, out of my markets. <laughs> so your, you know, jealousy, envy, and lots of just sort of like very tribal, tribalism things. How does that land on you? It's a, I, I like this question. Um, one thought is like, what, you know, what is it about your, I mean, is it, is it just that it's a small, like with the family case? Yeah. Is it just that it's a smaller number of people or is there some sort of like different attachment you have because it's blood? And like, is there a way to get you to feel that way about more people? Like one thing I always thought, like reading the religious texts as a kid, I was like, why, why is, why are people killing their brothers? Who would kill their brother? Like I would never want to kill my sister. And it just seemed like it's such a, like, yeah. what? It just, this is such a, I mean, not, there's so many ridiculous things in these books, but this yeah. just seemed like the most ridiculous thing to put in a book to me, like that somebody would kill their brother. Yeah. And then I was thinking about it recently, and I was just like, oh, well, anytime you're killing another human, you're like basically killing your brother. Yeah. Um, but I wonder if we could, like, if we got people to have that sort of value yeah. perspective shift, um, what would change? Like, I don't know if it gets to the, complexity point but well i was i I was curious about that achieving that via income share agreements actually like if you told me tonight that my fifth cousin is in town needs a place to stay and i've never met him before in my life all you told me was fifth cousin i'd be like yeah sure 100 percent. and if you also told you know i've invested a bunch of founders even a tiny symbolic amount and their company died i'd I'd say the same thing and money is sort of an interesting bond and i sort of it's like um this term is controversial, but like, it's like equity, uh, it, but like shared upside, shared alignment, shared upside. And, you know, you only have so many family members, but the fifth cousin, we sort of have like a genetic equity or the, I don't know if that's equity as much as like social context that we're expected to take care of each other in some way. Right. And similarly, anyone you put money into or, or have some shared thing, I, I feel like there's this um, just expectation that you will sort of mutually pursue each other's benefit. And it could, you know, if all of us felt like we had, some sort of equity, some shared alignment. How do you make legible our shared alignment and intertwining of our fates? And I think income share agreements is a good one. Now, some people have pointed out critiques that I'm really taking seriously that uh, money also presents co- uh, complicating effects as well. Maybe people thinking they owe someone or people thinking, oh, do you love me? Or is it just because I'm going to, you'll make more money? And I mean, Venmo is so interesting because it made legible somewhat people's like, social relate like relationship with money and i've actually thought could there you know could there be like a venmo that's like twitter because what you spend money on is really indicative of who you are and what you care about how is this all landing on you particularly as like quantifying social money and social or what does it make you think yeah well i do this is one of the things i um have thought about not to get back to the tax yeah, stuff because cool. i'm kind of sick of talking about taxes but i mean not just yeah. here but you know, thinking, writing, talking yeah. about taxes over the past year. But it was one of the things that kind of struck my mind. Like, how, is there a way to um, align incentives such that, you know, you see the big tech company winning and you feel like you're winning too and like sharing in that upside? Um, right now, I think most people don't feel that. Even though that, like there is an argument to say that there is a lot of truth to that. People just don't feel it. Uh, which maybe means like the dial is misset or maybe it just means if you're too far distant, yeah. you're never going to feel it. I, I don't know what the answer is on that one, but it would be cool to, 
tooth. I I I, don't know. I like I don't have a specific answer for you on the implementation, but I do like the tree that you're barking up of. How do you get people to feel this sort of shared sense of of upside? And then the other thing too is like you know the shared downside thing around yeah. like things like the um, like climate change and, and right. stuff like that. Um, How do you make these legible without having a con- common enemy? Like climate change is so abstract. And yeah. Historically, we bond over a common enemy, so it's hard to... Do you anthropomorphize climate change? Like, how do you... I, uh, these are cool problems for people to work on. Yeah. Uh, and I think there are a, lot, a lot of them are not necessarily technical problems. Yeah. I mean, it, maybe it will be like a mechanism thing. Like, capitalism is... Kind of technical. Like, right. I mean, you could, there's an argument yeah. to say it's, it's like a formula. It, it, but that's something I think a lot about. Like, is, is, are we going to do some sort of like value shift or are we going to design some sort of new mechanism and set of rules that get people yeah. to feel differently about one another? And, and maybe it's both, but it, it maybe, yeah, I mean, we were just talking about Christianity and sort of you know, compassion over nature and maybe there's like an updated version for, for a world of 8 billion people, you know, like what's going to get people to think about other people the same way they think about their brother when it's like deeply counterintuitive, maybe some sort of cultural or myth, myth, myth. Yeah. Well, the, 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 I, that's based in reality. I, yeah. I, <laughs> Which is, this is such a hard problem because I think you want a system which supports a plurality of value systems, yeah. like a meta system. And there are, I've seen a few people doing like kind of interesting thinking along these lines. Like there's a guy who has a blog called Meaningness. Oh yeah, I've read, um, I've read post. And there's some stuff to figure out too, like around these like meta systems. That, because I don't have confidence that, I like the value change thing is appealing because I see so much behavior yeah. based on values and I feel it myself. Um, but I don't have a ton of confidence that we'll get everyone to adopt the same set of values nor do i think that's even necessarily a good thing like i think a plurality of values is actually good i also don't think we're ever going to get the perfect measurement <laughs> and so you kind of land in this zone of maybe we need some value updates maybe we need some measurement mechanism updates but i think either one by itself is not going to be sufficient two two big topics i want to end on one is the uh, dave foster wallace and and ads because um, you written the second one is Silicon Valley and, and what you want more builders, tinkers, peers, your peers to be thinking more about. Let, let's start with Dave Foster Wallace. You've written a bit about how he sort of approached or predicted a lot of of what you know happened with advertisements and capitalism more broadly. Why don't you unpack a little bit of that? So this I love this David Foster Wallace essay. It's one of my favorite things I've read, period. Uh, e Unibus Plurum. Uh, and it's about television culture and the the basic idea is he's he's looking at TV and thinking man TV sucks like it's just horrible everyone spends all this time watching it and he's trying to like unpack unpack like why this is the case and the basic argument amounts to because the business model of television is advertising Advertisers want, for kind of like any possible slot, the biggest advertising base possible. That then kind of has this pressure on content to always appeal to the largest number of people possible. This actually kind of gets to my point about the multiple value systems being a good thing. 
And so when you're trying to appeal to as many people as possible, the content is going to be just kind of the dumbest, you know, silly shit that is like crude. And it's not because all of the people that watch television are like dumb or vulgar or whatever. It's because the intersection of the things that they have in common is reduced to the set of things which are crude and vulgar and like the, all of their sort of more interesting and higher interests and values are much more diverse, but you, you can't attract all of them at the same time and run ads against that by appealing to all sort of those diverse interests. Um, and so th this was sort of his explanation of like why television was so bad and, It rang, I don't know, I, I read this uh, probably for the first time maybe like, I don't know, five or ten years ago, and it, it rang really true to me of internet culture. I was really excited when, you know, early days of the internet, I thought, oh, this is so cool. Like, anybody can publish here. You're going to see all this weird, nuanced, interesting, random stuff on here. And it turned out business model of the internet is advertising, And the distribution channels are all, all kind of concentrated because, you know, Coca-Cola doesn't want to go buy ads from 200, you know, million different bloggers. They just want to buy ads in one place. Uh, and so, like, the basically the content production machine, I think, ended up looking a lot like the content production machine of all mass media before it. Um, it just feels like a disappointment. And like we could have had something maybe a lot just more interesting and diverse. There are other explanations you can imagine. Like I, I've thought about it more. Like you can imagine where the a world where the uh, the internet was not based on advertising, and maybe you still would have had some of the same pressures. Like like you don't really want to be the only person that watched a movie. Yeah. Like, even if you love that movie, you want to share that movie with somebody else and, like, talk about it with them and, like, know that you share that experience. So, while I think advertising, like, really exacerbates this problem, there's still a little bit of this pressure, just given the way people like to communicate with each other. But I think advertising really fucks it up. Yeah. If Dave Foster Wallace was alive today, what do you think he'd be writing about? It's. I just reread um, a bunch of his essays and just read a book of his short stories. That and this book of short stories I read by him called Oblivion was one I had never read before, and it's fascinating. It's a lot about um, advertising and media culture and alienation and loneliness and just a lot of the things that I think you see as. You, you will recognize as problems that everybody's aware of and talking about right now that are probably just worse because everyone has all this stuff on their phone all the time yeah. and is connected to it even more than they were when they were just watching it on the television. So I think you'd probably be writing about some of the same stuff yeah. uh, just on the internet. <laughs> yeah. and, and maybe to close, I was going to ask if you, have, if you have any thoughts that you want to share with peers in Silicon Valley and how you approach things differently. But you, you recently co-hosted a free speech conference with, with Sam Lesson. Yeah. Uh, can you talk about any takeaways that you had from that experience or what you, you wish, you know, more people took away who, who weren't there perhaps, or, or where you want the conversation to go around free speech was misunderstood or underappreciated. 
I mean, the the really hard things. One, this idea that I already mentioned of how much of the problem of misinformation is uh, actually a problem of people not having the opportunity to put good information to use and just having no prospects and opportunity in life. That I think is a pretty interesting angle on like part of the root cause potentially. So I'm not like a, a free speech zealot. Like I love, I think discourse is crucial for like people are social. You're going to, nobody's the smart, like all human knowledge is based on all other human knowledge. Like you want to preserve discourse, intellectual progress, critique of the existing regime of government. Like all this stuff is absolutely critical. I think to living in a, uh, functioning society that's not a dictatorship but any freedom is going to trade against the safety of the participants of other uh, sort of members of the same society and there is a lot of you know like like i'm not one of these people who should say like well you know anything possible that you say that makes me uncomfortable i should be able to silence but if people are using um you know, uh, social media to organize collective violence, that does seem pretty problematic. And the question is, where do you draw the lines and how do you preserve all of the important things about open intellectual discourse, critique of the government, etc., while actually protecting people from all of the very real violence that can come from using these speech communication tools to do really horrible things. And I guess the takeaway is like, there's, I don't think there's an absolute answer. Like as with anything, I think there's no absolute answer here. And it's, I would just be wary of um, any attractive argument you hear about an absolute yeah. Uh, my guest today has been Andrew Cortina. Uh, definitely check out all of his essays at cortina.nyc. You can look up Finn. Where can you, people learn about Finn? Finn.com. Anything else you want to plug or people should know about? I got a, my friend Ikram, who my co-founder at Venmo is working on a cool thing now called ENSE. E-N-S-E.NYC. It's it? kind of like a, a way to share um, short audio clips. Um, cool. Kind of like an audio Twitter. Um, but it, it's it's just fun and interesting and different. And um, it kind of lends itself to this personal, thoughtful yeah. type of like gratitude or just uh, nice discourse that uh, I don't, there's something about it that I don't see a lot of anger on ends. And I, I like going to a place where I don't see lots of anger. Um, yeah. So that's worth checking out. I'll definitely check it out. This has been a fantastic episode, Andrew. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It was fun. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 